Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. Nestled within the confines of Bennington County, Vermont, lies the imposing Glastonbury Mountain. It finds its place amidst the sprawling expanse of the Green Mountain Forest and stands as an integral part of the Green Mountains, which spans approximately 250 miles. The terrain of the mountain is rugged and formidable and offers an allure to adventurers and nature enthusiasts alike. Within the Glastonbury Mountain, the long trail carves its path, a renowned 272-mile hiking trail that winds its way through the length of Vermont, passing over the summit of the mountain. While the area is considered an exceptionally peaceful and beautiful part of the country, a shroud of mystery envelops its tree-covered depths. Between the years of 1945 and 1950, a phenomenon gripped the idyllic location, a series of mysterious disappearances. All of these people disappeared within a certain area within the mountain, an area which has become known as the Bennington Triangle. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 73 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. In the heart of the dense wilderness of Glastonbury Mountain, a seasoned outdoorsman named Mitty Rivers, age 74, was renowned for his expertise in hunting and fishing. He frequently led groups of eager hunters through the rugged terrain, guiding them in pursuit of elusive deer. Despite his advanced age, Mitty was in remarkable physical and mental condition, fueled by his passion for the great outdoors. While he held a position at the local paper company, Ben Mount Papers, his true calling lay amidst the wilderness. On the mild morning of November 12, 1945, Mitty assembled a group of four hunters embarking on an expedition to Glastonbury Mountain. They established their camp above Hunter's Rest, nestled within the confines of Bickford Hollow. At about 7.30 a.m., Mitty embarked on his hunting expedition alongside his son-in-law, Joe Lousen Jr., and three other hunters. Armed with his rifle, 15 shells, a pipe, and matches, they ventured out into the wilderness, focusing on the Long Trail. At a fork on Long Trail, a decision was made to split up temporarily, with Mitty assuring Joe that he would return to the camp for lunch. As lunchtime came and went, a growing sense of unease gripped the remaining hunters. Mitty's familiarity with the treacherous terrain of Glastonbury Mountain initially allayed their concerns. However, as the hours slipped away, apprehension took hold. By 3 p.m., the decision was made to organize a search party in pursuit of Mitty. Guided by Joe, they retraced their steps back to the fork in the trail where they had parted ways. They were determined to find Mitty and pressed forward, navigating the rugged landscape. 
shouting Mitty's name and firing their guns into the sky in an effort to alert him, they scoured the area until late into the evening. Eventually, darkness enveloped the area, forcing the men to reluctantly retreat to their camp. Among the hunters, concerns grew that Mitty might have inadvertently wandered toward the perilous Bickford Hollow, an area over the ridge from the long trail unfamiliar to him. Despite being a seasoned hunter and fisher, Mitty had been cautioned about venturing over the ridge. With the dawn of a new day and still no sign of Mitty, the hunters left the woods to report his disappearance. An urgent response was triggered, culminating in the formation of a search party comprising volunteers, including employees from Benmount Papers, where Mitty worked. Assisting them were approximately 20 local firefighters led by Fire Chief Wallace Madison. Their efforts commenced in the Bickford Hollow region. Systematically, they combed the area, calling out Mitty's name and meticulously scanning the terrain for any traces that could offer vital clues. The searchers received valuable information from Hollis Armstrong, who had been hunting in Bickford Hollow at approximately 4 p.m. the same day Mitty disappeared. He confirmed sighting Mitty in that vicinity and described how he appeared to be in good spirits. Hollis told Mitty that he was on the wrong side of the ridge, but Mitty didn't seem too bothered. As nightfall descended, the search efforts faced additional challenges. Darkness impeded their search, while the onset of snowfall further complicated their task. Reluctantly, they retreated for the night, their hopes temporarily stymied by the harsh conditions. As soon as dawn broke, they returned to the vast woodland and continued in their search. On day three of the search, Chief Madison made a public plea for volunteers. The timing couldn't have been more opportune, as the area was teeming with hunters during deer season. Chief Madison seized this advantage and urged them to keep an eye out for any sign of Mitty or any valuable leads that could assist in the search. A detailed description of Mitty was presented. He stood about 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighed around 130 pounds. He had white hair and wore glasses. When he was last seen, he was wearing a red and black plaid coat that was of a Mackinac style, brown wool suit pants, high shoes with felt overshoes, a plain gray work shirt, and a red and black hunting cap with a gray wool sweater. The following morning saw an impressive turnout, with more than 40 men responding to Chief Madison's appeal for assistance. Assembled at the fire station, they formed in groups and ventured into the thick woodland. Here, they combed through the rain-drenched woodland, calling out for Mitty. Compounding the urgency was the realization that Mitty had set off on foot without provisions, and temperatures had dipped below freezing overnight. Recognizing the pressing need for additional resources, a military call reverberated through the fire alarm signal system, summoning Company B to join the relentless search. Notably, local Boy Scouts and students from Bennington Mills High School rallied to offer their assistance, highlighting the unity and solidarity that pervaded the community. Meanwhile, a lone plane hovered overhead, trying to catch a glimpse of Mitty. It could cover ground much quicker than those on foot, but the pilot reported spotting nothing of interest. Amidst the search efforts, Chief Madison received a potential breakthrough, an account from a Woodford resident situated in the heart of Glastonbury Mountain, around five miles from Bickford Hollow. The resident claimed to have heard two distinct gunshots at 6 a.m. on two consecutive mornings. Speculation ensued, suggesting that Mitty might have managed to make his way to the Woodford area, potentially succumbing to an injury that impeded further progress. It was surmised that, in a desperate bid for help, Mitty rationed his ammunition, utilizing sporadic shots to attract attention. Despite this lead, the search for Mitty remained unfruitful, 
but by the following morning, there was a surge of unwavering determination in the form of more than 200 volunteers. They pressed forward, traversing the challenging terrain, but as night fell, a disheartening reality took hold. Mitty still remained missing. Confronted with the need for greater resources, 90 soldiers hailing from Fort Devens in Massachusetts were summoned to bolster the search efforts. They used the skirmish line technique of the Army to cover four square miles of woodland under heavy rainfall, but came across not a single piece of evidence. Amidst the search for Mitty, the selectmen of the town of Bennington made a significant announcement that caught the attention of both the public and those in need of a financial incentive. They offered a sum of $4 for a day's search in the woods, a lifeline for those who could only participate if remunerated for their efforts. Those who wanted to receive the money were asked to register with a clerk at the armory and then check out with the clerk at the end of the day. In an effort to share the introduction of payment to the public, Leo LaRiviere and town manager Burton Winslow walked through the town of Bennington with a public address system. Despite the passage of time and the bad weather, Mitty's family and volunteers still clung to the hope that he was alive and injured somewhere. However, according to state fish and game officials, the chances of finding Mitty alive were slim. The following day witnessed an influx of volunteers arriving in droves to offer their commitment to the search effort. Despite the offer of $4 compensation, none of them took up the offer, indicating that the search for Mitty transcended monetary motivations. As time wore on, the search operation expanded its reach, extending far beyond the confines of Bickford Hollow. Searchers had ventured as far as the midway point up the slope of Bald Mountain and ventured northward into Glastonbury Township. The six-day search had seen miles of rugged, rain-soaked mountain country searched by soldiers, firefighters, and volunteers, yet there had not been a single piece of evidence uncovered. The landscape bore no traces of Mitty's presence, no footprints marking his path, no remnants of a campfire, and no makeshift shelter constructed in a bid for survival. The next day, it was announced that the search for Mitty was being abandoned. Joe commented that any further searches would have been no use, as two to three inches of fresh snow covered the ground. All of the volunteers returned home while soldiers and firemen returned to their regular duties. The speculation of what happened to Mitty continued to run rampant. Some theorized that Mitty had suffered a stroke or heart attack, while others believed he fell and injured himself before succumbing to the elements. There was also speculation that Mitty could have drowned while trying to cross a brook and that his body then washed downstream. Many people also believed that Mitty could have been accidentally shot by a hunter who then decided to hide his body. On November 24th, it was announced that the search for Mitty was recommencing at the request of his family. Joe requested volunteers, intent on covering the easterly side of the valley. He said that while he had little hope of finding Mitty alive, they still wanted to recover his body. He appealed specifically to the Boy Scouts and asked them to report at the armory at 9 a.m. the next morning and to wear essential footwear. The search yielded no clues, and Winter's arrival rendered the search fruitless, devoid of any promising leads. The daunting conditions brought the search to a standstill, postponing any progress until the following month. Town manager Burton Winslow announced in April that they intended on resuming the search efforts. However, akin to previous attempts, this renewed endeavor yielded no clues of Mitty's fate. Subsequently, in a bid to invigorate the investigation, $100 was offered to anyone who could uncover Mitty's body. Soon after the incentive was publicized, a development occurred merely days later. While traversing the foot of Bickford Hollow, a woman named Eva L. Well stumbled upon a noteworthy discovery. 
a blue handkerchief. Concealed within its folds were 30 cents. Joe had earlier mentioned that Mitty habitually carried a blue handkerchief, lending significance to this newfound item. Intriguingly, the handkerchief bore a few ink stains, reminiscent of the ink Mitty handled in his employment at Benmount Papers. Laboratory analysis confirmed that the stains were indeed a match to the ink used at the paper company. This revelation permitted searchers to narrow down their focus to the vicinity of Bickford Hollow. Despite the narrowed search area, diligent volunteers were unable to unearth any traces of Mitty. However, the unfolding events were a harbinger of more perplexing disappearances within the expansive woodland. Paula Jean Weldon was born on October 19, 1928, to the renowned industrial architect and designer William Archibald Weldon and his wife, Jean Douglas. Paula was the eldest of four daughters and grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. After completing high school, Paula enrolled at Bennington College in North Bennington, Vermont, where she was known for her introverted nature. As an art student, Paula displayed remarkable talent and a deep passion for various mediums, including watercolor, oils, pencil, and charcoal sketching. On December 1, 1946, at approximately 2.30 p.m., 18-year-old Paula left her dormitory, informing her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, of her intention to hike along the long trail. Despite her efforts to persuade friends to accompany her, no one joined her, leading Paula to embark on the expedition alone. Paula frequently indulged in solitary walks through woodland areas, driven by her strong interest in botany. However, when she failed to appear for her classes the following day, concern grew among her peers. Elizabeth promptly notified the authorities after learning that Paula had not returned from her hike. The situation intensified as night fell, with temperatures plummeting below freezing. Paula, who was dressed in only a red jacket, blue jeans, and sneakers, faced the harsh elements with minimal protection. The disappearance of Paula sparked a widespread response from the community, echoing the previous year's collective efforts to find Mitty. At the time, there was no state police organization in Vermont, so the disappearance was handled by State Attorney William Travers Jerome Jr., who depended on the community coming together. Volunteers flocked to aid in the search, including members of Paula's botany class, who guided search parties to locations discussed during their studies. One such location was a cave on Mount Antony, located roughly three miles from the campus. However, the cave yielded no trace of Paula. Amidst the search efforts, speculations emerged within the community, suggesting that Paula had eloped with a boyfriend. However, her father, William, swiftly dismissed these rumors, stating, My daughter may have had a love affair. It's true she knew many boys, but they were only chums and accompanied her to socials and dances. I know she was not serious. While State Attorney Jerome Jr. entertained the possibility of Paula's voluntary departure, their line of inquiry received a potential boost from a local taxi driver named Abe Ruskin. Abe claimed to have transported a young woman from the college to the bus station on Sunday afternoon, around the same time Paula had set off for her hike. The available buses at the time were headed to Pittsfield, New York City, and Albany. Although Abe couldn't definitively identify his passenger as Paula, he suggested it might have been her. Acting on this lead, State Attorney Jerome Jr. enlisted the help of the Vermont Transit bus office manager in Burlington, urging them to contact all drivers departing from Bennington that afternoon. However, none of them could recall seeing Paula on one of their buses. While the imposing forest continued to be meticulously searched, a photograph of Paula was released alongside a detailed description of her. Described as approximately 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighing around 123 pounds, Paula had distinctive features, including blonde hair, 
blue eyes, a scar on her left knee, and a vaccination mark on her right thigh. Amid the ongoing investigation into Paula's disappearance, various speculations emerged, including the possibility of her voluntary departure or a state of depression. State Attorney Jerome Jr. noted a peculiar detail. Paula had failed to sign out of the campus that afternoon, a mandatory procedure that she had always followed. Her roommate, Elizabeth, revealed that Paula had been feeling depressed recently, citing a disagreement with her father regarding her studies. However, William, Paula's father, dismissed the argument as inconsequential. William vehemently denied the notion that his daughter was depressed, describing her as a cheerful individual and asserting that he had never observed any signs of distress. However, another friend, Joan Gilbert, from Paula's hometown of Stamford, Connecticut, concurred with Elizabeth's belief that Paula may have been unhappy. In the letter to Joan, Paula had written, I'd like to play, but there's no one to play with. She also described herself in the letter as a bogged-down Bennington student. As the search entered its second day, a conference was convened at the college, attended by William, State Attorney Jerome Jr., and other key figures. Subsequently, all 370 students were organized into search groups, with each group guided by a faculty member. The arduous search also enlisted the participation of Boy Scouts, many of whom retraced their steps from the previous year's search for Mitty in the same areas. Focusing on the hypothesis that Paula vanished during her hike, State Attorney Jerome Jr. and volunteers began retracing her movements. They received information from a college student who claimed to have seen Paula walking toward Route 67A after 2 p.m. on Sunday, headed in the direction of Glastonbury Mountain. They pulled over and asked whether she needed a ride, but she refused. New information emerged as Lewis Knapp, a local resident, came forward, claiming to have given Paula a ride while she was hitchhiking. He stated that he drove her near his house on Route 9, a location situated between Bennington and Woodford Hollow. This area was a mere 2.5 miles from the entrance of the Long Trail, which led up Glastonbury Mountain. State Attorney Jerome Jr. and searchers formed a theory that Paula proceeded from this point, either on foot or by hitchhiking, and their suspicions were confirmed when they received reports of her presence on the Long Trail. Ernest Whitman, a night watchman for the Bennington Evening Banner, recounted an encounter with Paula around 4 p.m. near the Trail Forks. Paula approached him, inquiring about the extent of the trail. After a brief conversation, she continued walking on the path away from Bennington. A woman walking nearby confirmed this reported sighting, telling State Attorney Jerome Jr. she had seen Paula speaking with Ernest. The long trail extended northward from Route 9, also known as Woodford Road. It wound its way up the mountainside for approximately five miles. Significantly, this was the same area where Mitty had vanished a year previously. In addition to these witnesses, an elderly couple came forward, reporting that they had been hiking behind Paula for about a hundred yards on the long trail. They claimed that as she rounded a corner, she seemingly vanished from sight. The reported sightings of Paula on the long trail meant that the alternative theories regarding her disappearance began to lose credibility. The searchers shifted their focus, considering the possibility that Paula had encountered an accident in the woodland, resulting in a serious injury or amnesia. The new development provided search volunteers with a specific area to concentrate their efforts, the Long Trail. The following morning, over 500 volunteers, braving treacherous icy slopes, ascended Glastonbury Mountain via the Long Trail. Equipped with walkie-talkies, experienced hikers led the search teams, determined to scour the mountain until darkness descended. Bennington County Sheriff W. Clyde Peck would also get involved in the search and led a posse up the mountain, 
intensifying the search efforts. It had now been four days since Paula set off on her hike, and while the weather was pleasant when she made her ascent, heavy snowfall fell that night. The grim weather and Paula's light clothing led to fears that she had perished somewhere in the woodland. On December 6th, a new theory took shape in the perplexing case. Officials leading the search efforts concluded that Paula, or her body, was not on Glastonbury Mountain. Instead, they put forward the notion that she had either voluntarily left the area or had been abducted against her will. This theory gained support when Rose Michaela, a member of the Vermont Bar, claimed to have seen a girl resembling Paula walking back down the long trail around 4.30 p.m. on Sunday. This account contradicted the testimonies of other eyewitnesses who had reported seeing Paula ascending the long trail during a similar time frame. Additionally, some witnesses observed a light pickup truck, possibly with New York license plates, descending the trail at the same time. Another individual noted a couple riding in a sedan down the trail near dusk, approximately a mile from where Paula was last seen. Officials began to speculate that Paula may have accepted a ride from either the truck or the couple, or potentially even fallen victim to an abduction. Dr. Lewis Webster-Jones, the president of Bennington College, supported this line of thought by suggesting that Paula might have initially intended to spend the night in one of the camps or lodges along the trail, but had a change of heart and opted for transportation out of the area. Additional tips further fueled the investigation. Millicent Sacconi from Cambridge reported giving a woman resembling Paula a ride to the first church on Mason and Garden Streets. The woman, carrying a suitcase, claimed to be a student in Vermont and mentioned meeting a young man. In Fall River, another individual came forward, stating that they had seen a disoriented woman resembling Paula on Tuesday night, accompanied by a man wearing an army jacket. The woman apparently asked for directions to Bennington. With various theories circulating regarding Paula's disappearance, a reward of $1,700 was offered to anyone who could provide information leading to her discovery, whether alive or deceased. Eventually, that grew to $5,000, a fine incentive for anybody who might have been harboring any information. Meanwhile, a helicopter from the Bell Aircraft Factory at Buffalo flew over the area where Paula was last seen in Glastonbury Mountain. It covered a large area but reported seeing nothing that could assist in the search for Paula. In the absence of a state police organization in Vermont at the time, Governor Mortimer Proctor sought assistance from Governor Raymond Baldwin, who agreed to lend support to the investigation. They assigned the investigation to Connecticut State Police Detectives Robert Rundle and Dorothy Scoville. Their initial course of action involved interviewing every individual who had encountered Paula on that fateful afternoon, as well as residents who lived along her route and those in the vicinity of the Long Trail. During their inquiries, they came across a lumberjack named Fred Gadette, who lived along a section of the Long Trail now referred to as Harbor Road. Gadette had an altercation with his girlfriend as Paula walked past him. In his statement to the detectives, he claimed to have stormed off, seeking solace in his shack for the remainder of the evening. However, in a subsequent interview, he changed his account, stating that he had actually driven up a portion of the trail. Detectives grew suspicious of Gadette due to his inconsistent statements. Moreover, two acquaintances of Gadette came forward, asserting that he had casually mentioned knowing the approximate location where Paula was buried within a hundred feet. When confronted with these claims, Gadette dismissed them as mere idle talk. Despite the detective's reservations, no direct evidence emerged linking Gadette to Paula's disappearance, ultimately leading to a dead end in that line of investigation. Eventually, William returned to his family in Connecticut without any significant updates on his daughter's disappearance. The search for Paula had been faced with a handful of setbacks due to the lack of a state police force. However, her disappearance sparked change, 
1947, the legislature created the Vermont State Police. With time, the search efforts on Glastonbury Mountain gradually waned, and life in Vermont resumed its normal rhythm. However, the mountain would not remain devoid of mysterious disappearances for long. Another enigmatic case would captivate attention just three years later. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. James Tedford, a 68-year-old World War I veteran, found himself living at the Bennington Soldiers' Home. By the latter part of the 19th century, the aftermath of the Civil War had left many soldiers burdened with physical and mental scars and lacking proper support and care. Recognizing the need for a refuge, discussions of establishing a soldier's home in Vermont surfaced, culminating with the establishment of the Bennington Soldier's Home in 1887. Nestled on a sprawling 200-acre estate, the facility boasted 170 acres of woodland, 10 acres of cultivated land, and the rest adorned with well-manicured lawns. Their mission revolved around providing exemplary health care services and advocacy for veterans, their spouses, and Gold Star parents, while respecting their choices and self-determination. Originally hailing from St. Albans, James Tedford had eventually found his way to the Bennington Soldiers' Home after his service in World War I. While his wife, Pearl, and her family still resided in St. Albans, James occasionally boarded a bus to visit them, seeking a connection to his past. In November of 1949, he embarked on one such journey back to St. Albans, with plans to return home on December 1st. It was exactly four years to the day that Paula disappeared. Accompanied by his brother-in-law, Earl Benjamin, James bid farewell to St. Albans at the bus stop, where he boarded a Vermont transit bus destined for Bennington. However, James never arrived at the familiar grounds of the Bennington Soldiers' Home, and his absence went unnoticed until December 7th. General Reginald W. Buzzell, the superintendent of the Soldiers' Home, urgently contacted Trooper Frank Constantine of the Bennington State Police to file a missing person report. The state police in St. Albans were also alerted, and in their pursuit to uncover more information about James' whereabouts after he boarded the bus, they engaged in a conversation with the driver. Detectives meticulously interviewed all of James' relatives, but none could provide any insight since his departure from St. Albans. A disconcerting concern arose that James may have inflicted harm upon himself. Reports from those at the soldier's home indicated that his mental well-being had been compromised. Furthermore, he allegedly confided in friends at the home that he planned to remain in St. Albans. Accordingly, James' relatives in St. Albans recalled him appearing despondent and expressing reluctance to return to Bennington. 
On December 7th, the state police issued a widespread alert for James, describing him as approximately 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighing about 116 pounds. At the time of his disappearance, he was last seen wearing a cap, a gray suit, and an army overcoat. The initial week of search efforts proved fruitless, until detectives received a crucial tip from one of James' friends, Walter Lamb. According to Walter, he engaged in a conversation with James outside the Burlington bus terminal, during which James mentioned his plan to return to the soldier's home. This contradicted the bus driver's account from the St. Albans journey. The driver believed that a man matching James' description disembarked the bus in Brandon around 8 p.m. that evening. Brandon, situated approximately 70 miles north of Bennington, was located between St. Albans and Bennington. This information directed detectives' attention to the Brandon area, prompting them to inquire with local residents about any sightings of James within the past two weeks. However, nobody could recall encountering him in the vicinity, and the lead eventually fizzled out. Within less than a year after James vanished, the area would once more be abuzz with searchers, as a little boy mysteriously disappeared. Autumn had once more come to the mountain-ringed town of Bennington. On October 12, 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson pulled on a light red sweater and blue overalls and climbed into the family's truck alongside his mother. Their destination was the Bennington Town Dump, a short drive away. Paul's parents, entrusted with its caretaking, oversaw the welfare of 65 pigs residing in its sprawling expanse. Each day, the pigs were shuffled from one section of the dump to another. Stretching across approximately five acres within a larger wooded area spanning 50 acres, the dump lay about a mile west of the edge of Glastonbury Mountain. Paul often accompanied his parents during their work. He was unable to attend school to what was described as nervous defects. On that particular afternoon while Paul's mother attended to the pigs, he sat in the front seat of the truck. However, when she returned after around 30 minutes, Paul was gone. Anxious and seeking aid, she hurriedly sought assistance from a nearby residence, hoping to locate her missing son. Given Paul's previous episodes of running away, the assumption was that he may have been hiding out somewhere in the dump. Their search persisted for approximately an hour before Paul's mother notified his father, Paul Sr., who was at their home in Shaftesbury. He contacted Sheriff John Maloney shortly after 5 p.m., who then called State Fish and Game Warden Jesse Watson, and some of his deputies began searching the dump for Paul. The first fear was that Paul had fallen down one of the steep embankments of the dump, and detectives called for a sniffer dog to be brought in. Little Queenie searched the entire vicinity of the dump with her nose to the ground and picked up a scent over the back road to the junction of East Road and Chapel Road. These roads were both flanked by the foreboding presence of Glastonbury Mountain. However, heavy rainfall hampered the search, and from there, the scent disappeared. By 2.30 a.m., the search had to be called off, and while most people returned home, Paul Sr. camped out in the truck at the dump in case his son reappeared. With the dawn of a new day, the piercing sound of a fire alarm reverberated through the town, serving as a call to the public to join the concerted efforts to locate young Paul. Firemen swiftly gathered, along with concerned members of the public, forming a united front in the search. Commencing from the Arlington end of East Road, they stopped at each home and asked each occupant whether they had seen Paul. Unfortunately, nobody could account for his whereabouts. Eager to contribute, the Boy Scouts once again offered their assistance, redirecting their attention toward Glastonbury Mountain. Paul Sr. revealed that his son had recently expressed a desire to explore the mountain following a recent trip to Wilmington. The notion that Paul may have ventured into Glastonbury Mountain to do a little exploring on his own 
gripped the search party's focus. Time was of the essence, for the relentless rainfall of the previous night and plunging temperatures had intensified the urgency. In a bid to expand the search coverage, a Coast Guard helicopter was dispatched from Salem, hovering above the forest canopy in a desperate attempt to spot any signs of Paul. However, by the third day of the arduous search, not a single clue emerged, leaving detectives and the community perplexed and Paul's loved ones racked with anguish. Among the theories that detectives pursued was the possibility that Paul had met a tragic fate amidst the dump's shifting debris while playing. Armed with poles, a determined group of more than 20 men meticulously sifted through the trash, inch by inch, hoping to uncover any trace of the missing boy. However, no sign of Paul could be found at the dump. On October 16th, it was announced that the organized search for Paul was being discontinued, although small groups would continue to search for him in Glastonbury Mountain. Just days later, a tip originating from New York interjected a renewed sense of possibility. According to Marsha Lemnack, she had seen a boy who matched Paul's description in the North Hoosick area on October 15th. The boy was walking toward the Vermont state line and Marcia said he was wearing a faded red sweater and brown trousers. Paul Sr., however, wasn't convinced, and felt the description of the boy she gave didn't sound much like his son. He said that his son walked with a marked gait. Detectives looked into the tip, but could find no trace of Paul in the area. October 21st witnessed another large-scale search effort with over 400 volunteers converging at the tree line of Glastonbury Mountain. Like an organized army, they fanned out, penetrating the dense wilderness, scanning the ground for any telltale signs that could potentially guide them to his whereabouts. Nonetheless, the search proved fruitless, yielding no tangible evidence. It had now been 12 days since Paul was last seen, and hopes of finding him alive were fast waning. The absence of clues fueled mounting speculation that the young boy had fallen victim to an abduction. The search had revealed a perplexing lead, a scent trail that led investigators to the middle of a dirt road, only to vanish abruptly. Although rain could have played a role in erasing the scent, a far more unsettling possibility loomed. Paul may have been snatched up by an unknown motorist. With an unsettling void of leads, insidious rumors began to permeate the tight-knit community. Some of these rumors cast a cloud of suspicion over Paul's mother regarding her potential involvement in his disappearance. However, as October neared its end, a curious development caught the attention of the Boston police. A letter arrived, penned by a man named James Sullivan. In his correspondence, Sullivan wrote, I think that the lost child is under the trash his mother dumped on the dump. Detectives diligently scrutinized the allegation, but ultimately dismissed it as a baseless theory. Nevertheless, the damage had been done, fueling the persistent wildfire of rumors that continued to spread unabated. As the search for Paul was gradually winding down, another unsettling incident unfolded on October 28th. 53-year-old Frida Langer was camping in Somerset Reservoir with her husband Max and her cousin Herbert Elsner. The family visited the camp almost every single weekend and had done so since they built the camp together in 1936. Somerset Reservoir was located in the Green Mountain National Forest, just 12 miles from Glastonbury Mountain. At around 3 p.m., Herbert left the camp to go hunting for Partridge, and Frida decided to join him. Max decided to stay back at the camp due to an injury to his foot. They were hiking in the woodland when around 45 minutes later, Frida slipped on some rocks in a brook and fell into the water. This was around half a mile from the camp, and Herbert assisted her in walking to the top of a bank about 150 yards away from the camp. Frida told Herbert she would walk the rest of the distance alone and encouraged him to continue in his hunting expedition. 
An hour passed and Herbert returned to the camp, only to learn from Max that Frida had never arrived. Max promptly alerted Lawrence Leonard, the caretaker of the Somerset Reservoir, who in turn notified state police in Brattleboro. By the time the search began, darkness was already encroaching on the area, but that didn't deter Frida's family or the detectives. They organized a night search, which included a patrol of the roads and a search of any camps in the vicinity. They also fanned out further afield, covering as much of the nearby woods as possible before the darkness became impenetrable. By the next morning, the search continued. Approximately 15 state troopers, including Merrill Landon of Bennington and William Roberts of Manchester, converged on the vast wooded expanse. Much like all of the previous searches, the community bounded together to offer their assistance in the grueling search. They began at the camp and then fanned out further afield, calling out Frida's name or searching for any kind of evidence to point them in the right direction. Mr. and Mrs. Scott Sherman were the only other campers in the area that weekend, and they told detectives they hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary. Detectives wasted no time in their search for Frida Langner, focusing their efforts on the banks of the reservoir, fearing she may have fallen into the deep waters reaching 50 feet in certain areas. However, there were no footprints on the banks of the reservoir, leading detectives to discount this theory very early on in the search. Another theory emerged, suggesting that Frida had suffered a blackout. A couple of years prior, she had suffered with a brain tumor and had what was described as spells. Around a year beforehand, she had an operation and was reportedly cured and had been in great spirits and good health ever since. Detectives considered that Frida's tumble into the brook may have resulted in her hitting her head, which caused another one of these spells or even a blackout. They wondered whether, when she was 150 yards from the camp, she could have become confused and turned in the wrong direction, leading her deeper into the woods. The fact that Frida knew the area like the back of her hand only bolstered this theory. Vermont State Troopers called in a helicopter to hover over the area while they searched on foot. They also brought in a sniffer dog who ventured into the woods following a scent but then returned to the camp. It was believed that the scent they followed was Frida's scent as she left the camp that afternoon to go hunting. On November 1st, Major General Merritt A. Edson broadcast an appeal for additional volunteers to search the woods. He stated, This is going to be a showdown search. Too many people have been lost in those mountains recently, and not a single trace of them has ever been found. People turned out in droves, and Max remained hopeful that his wife would be found. He commented, She knows these woods better than I do. She's hunted there many times and is one of the most resourceful persons I know. Three days later, a private inquest was held into Frida's disappearance in Brattleboro. State Attorney Edward A. John took written statements from everybody who may have some knowledge of the case, including Max and Herbert. The two men were ordered to take polygraph examinations and both passed. The inquest unearthed no new developments in the case, but it was decided the National Guard would now be called in to search the woodland. They were accompanied by over 350 volunteers, and they scoured the area foot by foot, but found nothing that could lead them to Frida. On November 13th, the search was called off due to the snowy conditions and deer hunting season, which made it dangerous for searchers. The following year, on May 12, 1951, a group of fishermen were fishing in the eastern branch of the Deerfield River. This was around three and a half miles away from Frida's camp. Here, they came across a heavily decomposed body of a woman, lying face up and fully clothed in the tall weeds. It was Frida. This area had been lightly searched beforehand, but rainfall and snow had impeded the search. State Attorney Edward A. John of Somerset issued a verdict of accidental drowning. He said there would be no autopsy. However, this decision was reversed by Vermont Attorney General Clifton Parker. While the autopsy report was never made public, Vermont Attorney General Parker announced days later that, following his investigation, he concurred with the determination that she had accidentally drowned. 
For half a decade, a secluded corner of southwestern Vermont bore witness to an eerie phenomenon of four people walking away into nothingness, and another meeting a tragic fate. Yet, it was the disappearance of Paula that gripped the collective imagination the most. If you were to swing a circle with a six-mile radius around that specific Vermont region, it would include the spots from which Mitty, Paula, Paul, and Frida vanished. However, the details surrounding James' disappearance remain shrouded in ambiguity. What is certain is that he boarded a bus heading toward Bennington, but the precise moment he disembarked is unknown. Though unreported by the media or the bus driver at the time, subsequent accounts suggested that his luggage was discovered on the St. Albans bus, only adding to the perplexity. Author Joseph A. Citro, in his book Passing Strange, immortalized the mystique of the region, christening it the Bennington Triangle. According to Citro, even the indigenous inhabitants held the land in dread, considering it cursed due to the convergence of winds from all directions upon its looming mountain. They avoided settlement, deeming the land suitable only for burial rites of their dead. Even today, folklore and local legend claim that something strange is afoot on Glastonbury Mountain. The gamut of theories runs wild, spanning to the realms of the bizarre, including UFO abductions, curses, and even Bigfoot. The more plausible theories involve accidental falls into concealed mine shafts or wells, animal attacks, or perhaps even abductions and homicides. Yet, in the midst of the mystery surrounding the Bennington Triangle, the true tragedy of these five cases often gets obscured. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening and please be safe. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.